Well, if you have a Bible, you can turn to John chapter 2. And as you're doing that, I want to mention that we have some invitations for you that you can use to invite friends, guests to come and join us here at the park this summer. So those invitations are over there at the table. And if you are a guest, if you are just maybe sitting in with us and uh, checking out Grace Church in some way, thank you for doing so. You can find out more about us at our website, which is gracechurcheast.org, gracechurcheast.org, or grab me or somebody else, and we'll be glad to talk with you further. Thanks so much, most of all, for being here today. And lastly, kids, if you want a fill-in-the-blank outline, those are over there on the table also. If you're, or if you're an adult and you would like a fill-in-the-blank outline, we're not checking IDs on those, so you can certainly... Uh, you can take an outline as well. Those are on the table. John chapter 2, Sung's going to read our passage for us today. John chapter 2. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables and he told those who sold the sold the pigeons take these things away do not make my father's house a house of trade his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Word of the Lord. So we travel this morning to the city of Jerusalem. Jesus, uh, I'm sorry, John alone records this early visit to Jerusalem. The other gospel writers record similar actions of Jesus later in his ministry. But this is early in his ministry, and it is the Passover time, a time in which they would celebrate God's judgment passing over the people of Israel while they were in Egypt as they sacrificed a Passover lamb. And we've traveled to an important place in Jerusalem, the temple. It was really kind of a, a, a national and, and religious symbol, very important symbol for the people of Israel. You could uh, imagine in our country maybe the symbolic value of the White House, perhaps, or maybe even more so Arlington National Cemetery. I'm not sure if you've ever been there. Just a moment as I negotiate the wind here a little bit. It's a breeze. I'm not sure if you've been to Arlington National Cemetery. I, I've been there before. And to stand at the tomb of the unknown soldier. 
And to see the changing of the guard, there's a certain solemnity. It's a, it's a solemn place. You feel like you're almost on sacred ground, as it were, in terms of our country. That's something of the importance of this temple in Jerusalem. But what does that have to do with us, you might ask? What does this place and this time, 2,000 years ago, have to do with you and me? Well, it speaks to something that I think most, if not all of us, desire to know about. How to genuinely know God and, and enjoy God and, and relate to God and, and worship God. You see, Jesus' actions and his words teach us something important about what I think you could sum up as true worship. Here's a little window into true worship through Jesus' actions and his words. So let's see both. First, by his actions we see a passion you might say, for true worship, a, a passion for true worship. In this, in this part of the temple, in verse 14, the temple doesn't look like Arlington National Cemetery. It's not, it's not filled with the hush of whispered prayers to God. It's filled with animals waiting to be sacrificed. We find oxen, we find sheep, we find pigeons. There's no way to know of how many animals are here at this point, but imagine the sights, sounds, and smells of the animal area of the county fair, and you pretty much see what this is like. Not only that, you've got money changers there. They would exchange your home currency for the appropriate currency to pay the temple tax and other fees. And one writer likens the practice to a modern stock exchange with the chaos of people pressing around, trying to exchange their money. Now, all this was necessary in ways. The problem is not so much of what they're doing, but where. All this is happening in this part of the temple, really out of convenience. It used to take place, these activities used to take place across the valley, but now they've been relocated in the temple precincts themselves in a part of the area called the Court of the Gentiles. The only place where a non-Jew could come and draw near to God and, and worship God at the temple. That was part of the temple's purpose. You see this when King Solomon prays in dedicating the first temple. In the book of 1 Kings, he talks about the foreigner coming. People coming from other nations, other peoples, to worship God. They're at the temple. But now they're preventing that from happening. Now that purpose is being obscured by a zoo and a stock exchange. So Jesus, with, with holy anger in his eyes, clears the place. Notice verse 15. Making a whip of cords, he, he drove them out. He drove them all out of the temple. With the sheep and the oxen. They poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. It's the holy anger of the Holy Son of God to purify, you might say, his father's House. Did you catch that in verse 16? Jesus says, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house, my father's house, a house of, of trade, of, of business. Jesus' actions are a unique expression of his sonship. That means we, we don't do this when a meeting doesn't go our way. <laughs> you know, if we don't like the sermon, we don't have to turn over the tables over there with the uh, song sheets on them or 
throw our masks on the ground or whatever. Doesn't mean we can't sell books or have a bake sale. No, what you're seeing is the Holy Son of God exercising his right to purify his father's house. And verse 17 gives us a clue as to his motivation. In verse 17, the disciples remember a passage of the Old Testament that interprets Jesus' actions. They think of Psalm 69, where King David pointed to the actions and the life of King Jesus, quoting here in verse 17, zeal, notice that, zeal for your house will consume me. The psalmist writes, zeal for your house will, will eat me up. This is a picture of Jesus' zeal, his, his passion, his passion for the purity and priority of the worship of God. That's what Jesus' actions are giving us a glimpse into, a zeal, a passion for the purity and priority of the worship of God, a zeal a zeal that we can emulate in in ways. I realize we don't have a, uh, any money changers to drive out here, not that I'm aware of. Um, we had in the first service a, a pet, but no other animals to drive out. But you know, the church, the church is the temple of God on the earth, the place of God's presence. Christians don't have a temple. We are the temple. The Apostle Paul said to the local church, the local church in the city of Corinth, do you not know that you are God's temple, God's temple, and that God's spirit dwells in you? So I think we can make at least some application to what we're doing here. It's not a direct line. It's not a perfect connection. I'd make a dashed line of at least some application we could draw for our lives, some connection we could make. Just by way of application, in the realm of application, to make a personal connection. Think about this priority of worship, this zeal, this passion for yourself. Scholar D.A. Carson calls Jesus' actions here, quote, a prophetic invitation, because Jesus is acting like a prophet of old. He says it's a prophetic invitation to worship God from the heart without clamor, or distracting influences. If you're taking any notes, I think that's a good quote to write down or try to remember. A prophetic invitation, that's what we're observing here. A prophetic invitation to worship God from the heart without clamor or distracting influences. So just to make a little application, just ask yourself for a moment, what might be some distracting influences I face in the worship of God with the people of God. For the Christian, all of life is worship, but what, what hinders your zeal, your passion for gathered worship like this? What, what are the distracting influences you can face yourself? It might be the distracting influence of convenience, similar to what we see here. If Sunday worship doesn't fit into my my morning easily, then, hey, there are other Sundays, right? We live in Southern California. We could be outside year-round. Many other options. I need, some, I need some me time. I need to maximize pleasure. I need to relax. And, of course, those are good things. But if mere convenience, friends, if mere convenience 
hinders us from the priority we see here. And perhaps a shift has occur occurred in our hearts. A shift from him at the center to me at the center. And we need what you might say is a Copernican revolution of the soul. Copernicus was the guy who had the radical idea that the, the earth revolves around the sun, not everything else revolving around the earth. A Copernican revolution is a, is a paradigm shift of what really is at the center. And that's the shift we need so often, isn't it? A, center, a, a shift from me at the center to someone far greater. A shift from me at the center to someone far more glorious at the center. A shift from me at the center to someone far more satisfying at the center. If you find yourself hindered by mere convenience, oh friends, recenter yourself, you might say, for the good of your soul. Or it might be we need this prophetic invitation for the distracting influence of entertainment. I don't need to tell you that we have a, a culture that is devoted to entertainment, and healthy entertainment is a good thing too. I'm all for healthy entertainment. But our, our devotion to entertainment can shape us as well. We make the atmosphere of the service central, and so we add a light show and a fog machine. We make the music all about performance and praise, and the goal of the service becomes an entertainment experience. And what happens is our attention gets distracted from the one who should hold our attention. Theologian R.C. Sproul was once interacting with a church leader who, who said, I don't want church to be boring or irrelevant for people. And certainly we don't want that either. We're not trying to intentionally bore you and we're not trying to intentionally be irrelevant either. But Dr. Sproul said to this person, he said, never once, never once in the Bible, when people encounter the living God, do they say that was boring and irrelevant? He said, when people encounter the living God in scripture, sometimes they die, sometimes they're terrified, but they never say that was boring and irrelevant. Something for us to learn there, isn't there? Friends, we don't have to entertain. We just need to engage. Engage with the truth about the one to whom we worship. We engage with his word, his promises, and the truth about his son. If you find yourself thinking this is boring or irrelevant, engage with the glory of what we're talking about. Or lastly, maybe we just find this prophetic invitation is needed for the distraction of mere routine. Just making this sort of a, a, an empty exercise, mere routine. We love novelty, don't we? We love what is new. We love what is different. But we gather weekly, weekly. And we do the same sort of pattern pretty much every time. Not the exact same thing every time, but the same general pattern every time. And so you and I, we must battle something here. We must battle against allowing this to be mere routine or just rote for us. One writer, one writer asked this, he said, I wonder, I wonder if brain surgery ever becomes routine for a neurosurgeon. I mean, it probably does, isn't it? 
something as amazing as brain surgery probably gets routine for a neurosurgeon. He asks, does, does the White House Situation Room become monotonous for a four-star general? It probably does over time. You, just, you know, you're there again, oh, once again, Situation Room at the White House. And then he says this, I have my suspicions that even four-star generals and neurosurgeons have to, quote, refocus themselves on the weight of their actions. Isn't that what we need to do every Sunday as well? Refocus ourselves, friends, on the weight of the glory of our actions. We get to refocus ourselves on the privilege of what we gather to do. The privilege, the privilege of coming to the living God, the creator of the universe, the one who spoke billions of galaxies into existence in a moment. The privilege of getting to enjoy his nearness, his presence, his glory, his truth. The, the privilege of having the greatest satisfaction of our souls found in him as we worship God together. So in his actions, there's a zeal, there's a passion we can learn from. But with that passion in mind, see, see what I think is really at the heart of this passage. With that zeal in mind, see what I think is really central for us to learn here. See, secondly, the person of true worship. The person of true worship. You see, Jesus gets now confronted by the religious authorities... And they say to him in verse 18, what sign, what sign do you show us for doing these things? What right, what authority do you have? Show us a sign. And Jesus won't be their puppy doing tricks on command. Instead, he says in verse 19, destroy this temple, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Well, the religious leaders are incredulous. It's taken 46 years for this refurbishing project in the temple to go on. You would rebuild it in three days? What kind of drugs are you on, man? But John clues us into what they were missing in verse 21. Look at verse 21. He was speaking. Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. And here we're getting right, I think, at the center of what we should learn here. He was speaking about the temple of his body. So Jesus is saying, here's your sign. Kill me, and I will raise up this temple of my body. That's my proof. That's my calling card. That's my authority for what I just did. It is the authority to take up my life again from the grave. You see what he's saying? You see the implication? The implication is that Jesus doesn't just purify the temple. Jesus replaces the temple. He is the new temple, you might say, for you and me. See, the Bible's story could be thought of as a theme of access, access to God's presence. Access was lost, being regained, and will be restored perfectly forever. It begins in Eden, a perfect place of God's presence, where Adam and Eve forfeited that access to God's presence by their sin. And then later on, God had Israel construct a tabernacle, a tent 
for worship, a tabernacle. And God filled that tabernacle with his glory. And then, of course, that was replaced by a temple under Solomon. And that temple was filled also by God's glory. But John has already told us in this book, in John chapter 1, that Jesus, quote, dwelt among us. Literally, literally, he tabernacled among us. Did you catch the connection? He tabernacled among us like that Old Testament tabernacle for worship. He tabernacled among us God's presence, you might say, on two legs. And we have seen his glory, John writes. So friends, the meeting place with God is no longer a place. It's a person. And this gets right at what God wants us to see. Because I think we long for this. To come to a person who made us. A divine person to whom we can pour out our praise and our troubles. I read how some people in China, some people in China are, are actually praying to the deceased doctor who first sounded the alarm about this particular coronavirus. After he died from the virus, people are now gathering virtually on his final post at a Chinese social media site. And they come and they say to him, good morning. And they say good night. And they share with this deceased doctor, on his post at least, how they are falling in love or falling out of love. And they whisper that they miss him. And I read that and I thought, it's just so tragic, isn't it? It's so tragic. They don't know the person who is the true meeting place with God, the true person they can pour out their hearts to, the true person who made them and loves them, Jesus Christ. He is risen. He is the meeting place with God for you and me. But that resurrection, that resurrection that he talks about here requires a death. In a way, Jesus is also here forecasting his death. As he says, destroy this temple, I will raise it up. He must first die for our sins, as also in chapter 1, John the Baptist has already told us. Where John the Baptist sees Jesus and says, behold, behold, the Lamb of God. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is how Jesus is, you might say, the true temple, because he is the true Lamb of God. He is the true Passover sacrifice such that the judgment of God, the wrath of God, passes over us for all who believe. In other words, Jesus is that substitute, making a sacrifice so that the judgment we have earned, the penalty that should be paid by us, would pass over us for all who trust him. I read also recently that the inventor of the cut and paste command for your computer also recently died. The cut and paste command. You know that command where you have some text on your screen and you highlight it and you cut it. And then you move your cursor over here, someplace else, and you paste that text, a different part of your screen. Well, that was invented by someone. I didn't know that, but that that has an, an, an inventor, someone invented the cut and paste command for your computer. You might say that Jesus, the Lamb of God, he's the cut and paste inventor for our lives, for our sins. 
where God has taken all the shame, the guilt of our sins, the things that we know we should not have done, the things that bring shame to you, that defile you before God. For those who trust in Him, He cut the, cuts those out of the record of your life. And he moves the cursor over to his son, his death and his resurrection. And he pastes all those things right there so that you can have access to God and worship him and enjoy him. As Colossians chapter 2 puts it, God has canceled the record of debt that stood against you, nailing it to the cross, pasting it to the risen Christ. So friends, the true, meeting, the true meeting place with God for you and me, is the crucified and risen Lamb of God, the person of true worship. And if you're here listening to me and you've yet to trust in this Savior, I want to urge you to do so. I want to urge you to turn to Him even right now, to realize that you need that portion of your record cut and pasted to Him. And that you would turn from going your own way and trust in the Lamb of God, this substitute, to bring you to Him. And then you can enjoy access to God yourself. And if you have believed, if you have trusted Him like that, then continue to look to the Lamb. Continue to consider what the Lamb of God has done for you that might fuel true worship in your heart. And seeing your need of Him will fuel worship of Him in your soul. One writer has put it this way. He said, the three most important words for the Christian life all begin with a G. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. I think that's a bit of an over oversimplification, but it's still helpful, isn't it? There are three important words to remember. Guilt grace, and gratitude. If you remember those three things, that will fuel your worship. You will remember why you have access to God, and you will worship Him with joy. You will recognize your guilt, that you can't draw near to God on your own, but He has cut and pasted that part of your life to Christ, and you will recognize His grace in sending His Son, who lived and died and rose in your place, and then your heart will be filled with gratitude as you come to Him through the living temple, Jesus Christ the Lamb of God, and you will have grace-motivated gratitude that recenters you from self to Him. You have grace-motivated joy that overcomes our craving to simply be entertained. You have grace-motivated awe and wonder that keeps us from being merely rote or routine. You will draw near to Him with grace, grace-motivated gratitude as the fuel for your worship through the Lamb of God. Amen? Amen. So friends, see this, this passion, you might say. See this zeal. See it as a prophetic invitation to you. But most of all, see this person. Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God, the true temple, the true meeting place between us and God himself. That you might enjoy God right now through him. Let's pray together with that in mind. And then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Let me just give you a moment to interact with God here. 
having seen Jesus as the true temple, true means of access to God, the meeting place between us and Him. Take a moment to interact with God through Christ. If you've yet to believe, you can do so right now. You might say to him, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for my sins. I need my sins, my guilt cut away and pasted to you. Thank you for dying for me. I believe you died for the sins of all who believe. Please come into my life right now. Grant me access to you as my risen Savior. Or if you have believed, remind yourself, even this moment, of your guilt outside of Christ, your guilt left to yourself, the grace of God in giving his Son for you, and be filled with gratitude again as the fuel of your worship through the risen Lamb. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you. Thank you for this picture, this invitation. More so, thank you that the way has been opened, a new and living way, opened through the curtain that is your body, our great priest over the house of God. Help us to draw near with a full assurance of faith right now, we ask you. In Jesus' name, amen.